tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 157. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And welcome to this week's show. Now, uh, today we're going to be talking about a company that were such a big company back here in the UK in the world of video games and computers Back in the early 80s, really, I find it quite hard to find information about, but they're a label that everybody used to buy their games. Today, we're going to be talking about Telecom Soft. Yeah, so this was the company that was out of British Telecom, right? Who were the phone company in the country. Yeah, Yeah, now British Telecom, for those outside the UK, they are, I mean, now it's it's privatised, isn't it, British Telecom? But back in the day, it was like a publicly owned service, wasn't it? The the telephone company. And um, Telecom Soft was a weird one because British Telecom invented this company and also the post office were involved in it as well but actually it turned out they had a few spin-off labels including the one we're mainly going to talk about today which was firebird software going back to that era i mean they started bringing out games back in 1984 so that was kind of here in the uk that was the peak of like the micro computer revolution mm, yeah when all the kids were going out getting spectrums and commodore 64s and that kind of thing but what was interesting is obviously having the backing of british telecom they probably had a few more quid in their bank account than rival labels so they were able to get some pretty good licenses oh definitely and we're talking to the owner of bird sanctuary as well which is an awesome name <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of the firebirds huge fan site yeah well, it's a bit more than a fan site really it's really a definitive history website and um, because today we're joined by richard hewison now richard actually worked for firebird back in the day and we were looking through his um biog on moby games he's worked as essentially a a quality assurance tester, a video games tester, since the early 80s. And let me name a couple of the games that he's been involved with. Frontier Elite 2. Classic. Reach for the Skies. Dune 2. Sensible Soccer. Beneath a Steel Sky. International Sensible Soccer. Microcosm. Overlord. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Load of games. And he is a massive fan of Firebird. And I think, really, Richard is kind of the definitive. If you want, like, you know, someone who knows this company, the definitive source that you go to if you want to find out about Telecom Soft and the story of Firebird Software. So not only do we get the inside story on that too, but he's involved in a new project at the moment, The 64, which is that Mini 64. So we uh, got a little bit of exclusive news about maybe what's next for that at the end of this interview as well. So hang around. Richard Hewison is our special guest talking all about the history of Firebird and Telecom Soft. He'll be on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now we thought to start this week's show, we'd let you know how you can listen to the Retro Hour podcast. Now, a lot of people, are, you're listening already, obviously, but some people don't realise quite how many ways and places that you can actually get this show. Yeah, so we're always talking about kind of Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher. These are the places that we usually have it. Well, we've got a new website now, so you can look through the full archive of the past shows and kind of play them. And they're all being played through Audio Boom at the moment, which is our provider. But we also have a lot of external services, so we'd love to know 
how you guys listen to the Retro Hour. Like, what podcast apps do you use or what services? Because I've been looking around and we're on Player FM. Player FM, yeah, I've heard of that. I haven't used it much before. But I think they've got a really nice kind of embeddable widget. I've seen people like tweeting uh, links from there before. What, yeah. do you, what do you use for podcasts? Um, I use Overcast, yeah. uh, which is a nice little app. But there's there's quite a few ones out there at the moment. Actually, the Google podcast app itself yeah, on, on Android, Android it? yeah. is now actually getting quite high up there. And the iTunes one, they, they, they fixed it a bit recently, the Apple one, because that used to be horrendous. It would download absolutely <laughs> everything and just fill up your iPhone. <laughs> I remember that once. I had like, because um, I get 20 gigs a month data on my plan, which, you know, it's not bad. Um, but I remember it was probably about two years ago. I suddenly got a message pop up on my phone going, you've used all your data allowance this month. And I was like, what the hell? Looked and yeah, the Apple podcast app have been downloading, you know, like Leo Laporte's podcast, a video, like, you know, yeah, 1080p yeah. videos all on my phone. So, um, yeah, that's one thing to look out for. But I mean, generally, I use one called um, Pocket Casts. That's my favorite yeah, one. Yeah, Pocket Casts, Overcast is quite good. Pocket yeah. Cast is paid for, is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's worth it, though. It's very extreme as well. I think mean, Overcast is free. Yeah. And it has a little app at the moment, but it also has the problem of downloading everything. Because we do get some people saying, you know, can you give us the MP3 to download? But we do offer that on our website as well. Yeah. We have direct links if you want to get the MP3 file and play it on anything you like. And also we upload the show every week onto YouTube. Um, just the audio only. We don't get many listeners on there, but I mean, there are some people who are not really into the world of podcasting. But We, like we have some funny people as well that actually comment <laughs> on there and they say, oh, your podcast's really good, but you should expand from YouTube, you know, guys. And we're like, no, YouTube's not our main platform. <laughs> but we'll continue putting it on there because it's like five minutes to upload. Yeah, and I've also noticed Deezer yeah. as well as one and Radio Public. So there are plenty of ways to get it. And I mean, if you've got an Amazon Echo or um, one of the Google Homes, all you've got to do is ask it, play the Retro Hour podcast, and we should stream on there from TuneIn. So, and we do get messages of people saying, oh, you know, I wish I could listen to the show like in the car or whatever. There are loads of ways to get it. And we have links to all the most popular ones on our shiny new website at theretrohour.com. Now, if you want to keep supporting the show as well, that is also the same place as we have a little link there for our tip jar on PayPal. Um, and the reason that we ask for tips, I mean, we don't mind doing the show for free. And in fact, you know, we really do pay for the show out of our own pockets, really. We occasionally get a sponsor, but really the show is listener-supported. So anything we get into the running of the show means stuff like the new website, stuff like Audio Boom. It means we don't have to pay for it all ourselves. So it does really, really make a difference, guys. Um, any amount that you donate. Yeah, if you just click on support on the website, then that will take you completely to the donation section. Of course, cool. so that's all on the website right now at theretrohour.com. And for making a donation of any amount, you will get a mention on a future episode of the show and find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, Simon Buckner, Marvin Drugsma, Lawrence De Bruyne, and Rene Wind Olsen. Who all made donations into the running of the podcast. And you can do the same via PayPal or crypto if you're into that. You'll find it all right now on the website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat, Firebird and Telecom Soft with Richard Hewison. We always like to go through the stories that have been making the headlines in the world of retro gaming this week. And an absolute legend is finally getting the recognition he deserves. Let's talk about Jeff Minter. Oh, yes. So... Is this a documentary coming about, Jeff Minter? Yeah, now there's going to be a new documentary. Um, it's called, and this is a really good name for something about Jeff, because, you know, he lives as Neon, if you've played any of his games. Heart of Neon. And this, um, the guy that's actually behind it is a guy called Paul. And he was at Play Expo 
I believe he filmed the panel that we did with him. Ah. Um, he didn't come and say hello, but I did see someone there with the camera. But I've been reading on um, RNL Muck forums here. He's posted talking about this um, documentary that he's making. He's worked in movies and um, kind of you know film and TV production for quite a long time. But this is the first thing he's done as a director. So, I mean, if you look at the quality of it, he's just released a little two-minute teaser trailer. And this has been 12 months in the making. So it looks like it's finally getting to the stage now where it's going to be released anytime soon. And there's contributions from loads of other people in here talking about how influential Jeff's work has been over the decades. Yeah, like Gary Penn was yep. in there. That's one that I recognised. And Jeff's games, they, they have a really kind of sense of getting in the zone and jumping in there. I don't know how else to put it, but when you're playing a Jeff Minter game... you you kind of have that weird focus and concentration where you're not focusing, but you're just in the right place. <laughs> like a trance kind of state. Yeah, 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 that's it, definitely. <laughs> it's a, definitely a kind of meditative thing. But it's great, I mean, because everyone loves Jeff Minter, and he was even in um, Bandersnatch, wasn't he, the, um, the yeah. thing that was on Netflix. If you look at that, a lot of people didn't realise Jeff was actually in that, but it is Jeff Minter who plays, um, I can't remember the name of the guy he plays in it now, but that kind of legendary programmer who you see little like snapshots of. And obviously everyone in in European gaming, I'd say, has got a lot of affection for Jeff Minter. And we actually had him on the podcast back in, was it October, November we had yeah. him on? The Jerome F. Davies, that was the guy. Yeah, okay, that's who we played. But it's good to see that someone is finally sitting down and doing a proper documentary, telling the story of Jeff's history. And yeah, from what you've seen here, it looks like it's filmed on Jeff's farm and he's got his sheep all looking through the window while he's playing Tempest. And the huge... <laughs> great thing about Jeff Minter is that he hasn't compromised with his style yeah. even since the 80s days you know many people have changed their style they've got into total different styles of gaming Jeff just loves that zone yeah. and kind of having that trance like stuff and he's even brought that into virtual reality and yeah he's a, he's, a, he's a very good games designer and I'm glad that this is coming out yeah well, I was playing um, Polybius on the PlayStation VR last night actually first time in a while awesome such a good game pretty much the only reason I polish off my PlayStation VR like every few months so um, as we find out more about that we'll let you know of course and I will put a link to the trailer this new documentary that's coming out all about Jeff Minter called Heart of Neon and I'll put that and the rest of this week's stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com and tell us about this copy of The Legend of Zelda that sold for $3,300 at auction. Yeah, so this is a, a copy of Zelda, and the difference is this has been sold in the Dallas area at a heritage auction. So this is really interesting because video games have not been seen as heritage yeah. or, or kind of part of his history before properly. And uh, they're saying that this has been graded as well um, with a certificate now, how do they do that? Graded in boxing. Yeah, that, that really interests me. Like, I know they do comic book grading. Yeah. So, like, you know, you, you have your issue one of Superman and if it's got a little scratch by the spine and stuff. But I, I was just kind of looking it up and there seems to be a few video gra grading agencies. I, I don't know. Is it worth it, do you think, <laughs> video game grading? Well, they're saying here that the reason this copy went for so much is it's a new inbox seal copy of The Legend of Zelda. Um, I mean, maybe there are ways it can look at, like, you know, the is a plastic on there? Well, I know, I, I know people that can reseal. Like, you know, so it's, it's, it's a hard, hard kind of area video games. And well, like, maybe it's like the age of the glue that's on there. I mean, when you look at comics, that's how they do it, isn't it? The age yeah. of the paper and the print and the ink. And... But I'm looking here at the Video Game Authority, and they've got <laughs> games. Our overlords. Yeah, our overlords that they're grading at the moment. And they've got some original Atari 2600 stuff, but then they've got like PS2 games in there. Right. 
and stuff. I just find that a bit odd. I don't think they're... Yeah. You know what makes me... Who would grade my Amiga games? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> well, all your dodgy ex-copy copies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Originally copied in 1992 <laughs> by Rabbi Um But what's interesting about that is, you know, we were in... Because um, we were in Ireland over the weekend, and we went to Dublin on Sunday, didn't we? Yeah. After this event that we'd been to. And we, we found a really cool little games and record shop called Rage in Dublin. Yeah, that was awesome. Great place. And we said we'd give the guy a shout because it was a cool little shop. And I was looking through some of the PlayStation 2 games that he had there, and they're all really, really cheap. But I remember thinking then, should I buy a few of these kind of sealed ones and put them in the attic for 20 years? Because you always feel like now, video game collecting is so big that that market won't be there in the future. You see, I, I was totally into that. I was like, right, I'm going to get a load, seal them off, have them upstairs, you know, never touch them, yeah. all of this. No, I got it out and played with it. You know, you, <laughs> you can't, you can't just seal them off unless you're doing it for like a business. Or you buy two copies. Or you buy two copies, yeah. And you have two houses. <laughs> so you've got stuff like, um, you've got Zelda Breath of the Wild on the, the Wii U, haven't you, sealed? Yeah, yeah, sealed. That, that was because I knew that was like the last print yeah. of that and stuff. But stuff like, you know, Amiga CD32 photocopied pamphlet of how to use the controller. That's not going to be... How, how are they going to grade that? I don't so, know. Someone sold a, a CD32 box, I think, on eBay last week that went for £120 just for the box. But what about disc rot as well? So what yeah. if the PlayStation games start to rot? Eventually they will. And all of the CD media will. And all of the tape media will as well. So how are they going to grade that? You know, oh, here comes the original mashup tape and here's my backup copy. <laughs> well, know. a lot of these, the sealed copies are the ones that go for the most money. So I guess they'd never know. They don't open right, the box, Yeah, do open they? it and then see. <laughs> Just dust. <laughs> Ten years that, later, yeah. it could be dust, yeah. I did that once and, uh, with a game that had like a free T-shirt with it. Right. And I, and I came and I picked up the T-shirt and it just fell to bits in my hand. There's moths flying. From a it. sealed one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got like some, um, I had some tapes in my mum's attic and it was in an area of the loft that was a bit damp and i remember trying to play like a, might be like a commodore 16 tape or something and it wouldn't load then i looked and it had like all mold on the on the tape and it was oh. all over the heads of the, the tape drive i was like oh minging. so but I, I mean the thing is these people are not collecting them to play them are they no no that's what i mean if you're like a auctioneer or you're a kind of collector uh for profit mm. then uh yeah i'm sure video grading's good for you but i, I think the average Game users not going to be spending their money on video game grading. They're probably going to buy more games. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, what you want, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, did you have a website on GeoCities back in the day? Come on, don't be ashamed. We all did it. Yes, I did. <laughs> and GeoCities was great because it was like everybody had their own little corner of the web. Um, I had Angel Fire later on okay. as well, and I got big onto Angel Fire um, because I think the addresses were a bit shorter and GeoCities were a bit more aggressive on the pop-ups well, from I remember, what I remember later on. Yeah, GeoCities had like um, villages, wasn't it? Um, so you go on. I remember I had a few on there and I actually found one a couple of years ago. So there are efforts to archive them, which um, I don't think anyone that had a GeoCities website actually wants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they were like um, communities, weren't yeah. they? And uh, you'd all be in your separate community. So when you made a GeoCities site, you'd have to make a GeoCities site with, say, in Athens and then go to a little section of Athens or, like, the tropics or Vienna. <laughs> yeah, well, mine was in Times Square, which I think was, like, the science and technology section. And then there's one called The Lair, like a subdomain in there. So remember, it was geocities.com slash Times Square slash Lair slash whatever numbers it was. Uh, but, yeah, it's it was a cool website. I mean, you've got to think about GeoCities in the context of the mid-'90s. It was really the world's first 
social network in a way. It was, you know, now you get your Facebook page or whatever and you put all your stuff on there and you, you blog about it and things. It was really the, the first place, you know, you go and you'd make a homepage, wouldn't you, to talk about the things you're into. But, but then you'd only talk to people in your neighbourhood. Yeah. Because there wasn't a way of kind of exploring the wider world of GeoCities. Well, with all this modern technology, we do have a way now. There's an artist called uh, Richard Weegen. Weegen. And he's launched a thing called the Deleted City Map. Now, this is awesome. It's 652 gigabytes of GeoCities data. And the way that they've done it is they've done it in a huge kind of map. It's uh, on deletedcity.net. And it's a huge map that you can zoom into of each area. So, yeah. like, as we were talking about Athens, you could zoom into that area. You You even did it earlier, didn't you? And you found a section. And then as you zoom further into the page, uh, into the kind of area, the more pages get revealed and you can actually start seeing all the old GeoCity sites on there. Yeah, I mean, it looks a bit like when you use Google Earth and you're like in space. Yeah. And you zoom down and down and down until you get to a road. It's like that, but then, yeah, you look around and it, it looks kind of a bit like the Matrix. It's all green, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then you zoom in and all of a sudden, yeah, you're looking at the, the neighbourhoods. So, I mean, it is like a mapping service, really. Uh, very cool, though. Um, I imagine it probably works a bit nicer on a tablet or a phone or something than it, than it does on a, these awful machines that we've got in this room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. it does work you know really, I mean? really well. And uh, there's a big zoom button on the side as well, but you can do it with your fingers as well, pinch. But um, it's just a really nice way of presenting archive data and old stuff in this kind of, you know, visual maps that they can do nowadays. And I, I do like the fact that people are preserving this early web history i mean all right it's a lot of dancing baby gifts and under construction messages and you know there's all spinning around email me now best viewed on netscape navigator all of those kind of things from back then but i think the fact that yahoo deleted it all like yeah. a decade ago they obviously didn't see the value in the preservation of what was you know the first service that give the average user a space to build their own personal website and i think as time goes on we are realizing that it is important, even though the, the, the content on there might not be that exhilarating to look at these days. And the thing was, as well, it was a lot freer than it is nowadays. Like, all that data belonged to them on their own site, whereas our data's all over other sites and it's all kind of partly owned by something and all this stuff, where GeoCities was just like, I want to make a site full of dancing babies, let's just do that. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was more, it's like the Wild West, wasn't it, GeoCities? Well, even in the early days, you wouldn't have, um, I, don't, I don't think they had adverts on it for the first couple of years, did they? Then they started putting them in there. Uh, but you go on everyone's website, they'd have like, you know, um, MIDI files that start playing. And <laughs> well, the main <laughs> thing for me was that mailbox where the, the door would open and yeah, it would yeah. go mail me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that> was, uh, <laughs> a lot of like glowing like gifts and yeah, all that. Guest as well. books as well, just oh, seeing God, yeah. how many people and hit counters for the site, yeah, that you could refresh. We should just... put a hit counter on our new website. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. Go old school. <laughs> actually, we, we've had a chat about that before. We might actually do like a little sub branch of our website. Um, yeah, I could theme it to go old school mode. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. We yeah. so need to do that. And with a guest book and everything on there too. Yep. So, um, but, you know, it is cool that people Contact still... my ICQ here. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my number a couple of years ago. I've forgotten it now. Oh, it's like 10 digits long or something, <laughs> wasn't it? Um, but, yeah, the early days of the web. It is cool looking back. And, uh, you yeah, know, even though I do, I've got some sites I'd probably rather never see again, it is a good thing that people are preserving them. So if you do want to see uh, Ravi's teen angst blog from 1995, um, I'm sure you can find it by zooming in on this map somewhere. I'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, you know, these um, Sega compilations that have come out recently. Um, they've been getting a lot of love. Even the, the NES games, you know, the Nintendo Switch we were talking about last week too. But obviously Atari has got a massive fan base. What about if you want to revisit some of those classic Atari 2600 games in 2019 on your Nintendo Switch? Well, they've just released this new compilation, the Atari Flashback Classics Collection on Nintendo Switch. Now, this looks pretty cool. When you sent me this link over, I thought, oh, what's it going to be, like a little pack of like 10 games or something? There's 150 games on this. Yeah, and they've properly put some effort into this. Yeah. So the art from the cabinets on is on the side of the overlays. Yeah, because it's not just 2600 games, is it? No, no, no. And uh, you, you've got a lot of the arcade classics and stuff like Tempest, of course, here, Jeff Minter. All the classics, but also they've got it because, uh, you know, a lot of these games were designed for vertical screens. Yeah. They've got it so if you turn your Switch... Oh, yeah. long ways? Yeah, yeah, it will actually fit in the vertical screen, which is quite cool. That is really good because I've got the Namco collection and it's got Gallagher on there, um, but it's really narrow in the middle of the screen. You've got, like, the artwork all around it. And actually, I was playing it and my missus looked over and she goes, um, oh, can't you turn it around and make it longer? I was like, oh, no. She even noticed that, that that was a good idea and she's not into video games at all. But having all these this collection together, and like you said then, they do this and give it a lot of love as well. Now, it is the Atari arcade games, it's 2600 games, but also they've got stuff like 5200 and 7600 games on here as well. Some of those kind of later Atari games that maybe you haven't played if you um, haven't emulated it, haven't got your hands on the original hardware. So it's like, I haven't really played an Atari 5200 much. Yeah, it seems like a good collection because every time I get them, I'll either get like 2,600 games. Yeah, the same I, ones. Then I play Pac-Man on that and like want to cry. You know, so. <laughs> Flashing away. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but they also give you stuff like um, all the manuals have been scanned in as well. So you can actually read the original manuals on your screen, which um, that must be, even doing that, scanning in 150 game manuals into like PDF format or whatever, must be a bit of an effort in itself. Yeah, they're saying, you know, some of the manuals are a little bit blurry. Yeah. So it might be hard to read some of the scans <laughs> on the actual screen. Uh, but, you know, it's it's got lots of good display options and uh, it, it, it preserves the original version perfectly. That's what they're saying. So, you know, there's no kind of lag or anything on this. Yeah, I imagine the Switch can play Atari 2600 yeah. games <laughs> yeah, without breaking too much of a yeah. sweat. Uh, but, it, but it's good that we finally got this collection, you know... It, what I love about stuff like this is you can download Atari ROMs and play them on anything. But when you get a nicely presented package together that's gone to the effort of doing like a nice layout and putting the artwork in there and scanning the manuals and giving it some love, it feels like you're buying a quality product. Then, and you're it? getting that many games of it as well. That's yeah. quite a good deal, to be fair. Yeah, 150 games. That's going to yeah. keep you going a while, isn't it? So, See, Atari games, they often don't hold my interest for very long. Um, but, there, I mean, there are some golden games on there, stuff like Tempest and that, you know. First, the first game I played was Miss Arkham. So yeah. that's like, you know. Yeah, so if you do want to get this, we'll uh, put information about the Atari Flashback Classics Collection for the Nintendo Switch in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, then we will have more news for you next Friday. And right now, let's talk about the legendary British company, Firebird Telecom Soft, with this week's special guest, Richard Hewison. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And we're going to find out all about the history of Firebird, Telecom Soft as well, an amazing British company from back in the day with Richard Hewison, who actually runs Bird Sanctuary. Um, I think possibly the, the only fan site dedicated to Telecom Soft. Is that right, Richard? 
Uh, as far as I know, yes. I haven't come across any others. <laughs> well, uh, welcome to the show, first of all. And um, just quickly, why did you decide to set the site up then? Why did it need a fan site? Um, oh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I wanted to teach myself the skills of actually doing a website because it was a uh, quite a it seemed like it was a, a good thing to learn um secondly i started to get a little bit um i wouldn't say annoyed but there was a lot of information that other people were putting up on the internet about the company that i knew wasn't right wasn't correct so i thought well bearing in mind i worked for the company and i know an awful lot of other people that did as well uh maybe it might be a good idea to kind of put up I mean, it's more than a fan site as such. It's more like an insider's view because obviously, you know, I worked there. Yeah. So I was, I'm was i able to, to give people information and, and anecdotes and things that they may not, not have seen before. And um, although my memory isn't 100% correct all the time, and, I've, and I think as I say on the site, I'm willing to, you know, uh, get, allow other people to, to, to chip in and, and offer their own memories and things. Um, but I, I remember most of it. Um, and I think, Possibly the reason why I do is because I only worked in the industry for a certain time and then had a long period out of it, whereas a lot of my colleagues um, have stayed in the industry and have been working it for 30 plus years now. Yeah. And so they end up working with a lot of the same people that they worked with at the start, again, two or three times over in different companies. Because, you know, you know, one big fish swallows up another fish and all these companies end up getting taken over or merged into who knows what. And so they end up reworking with the same colleagues sort of 10, 15 years later. And so all their memories of what happened and why kind of get muddled into one lump. Whereas my memory is a lot clearer because I kind of stepped away from it. So I, I, I tend to remember a lot more about stuff than, than any of they, any of my uh, my former colleagues do. Um, so uh, I think they find that quite helpful as well because I can point out a few things sometimes that they've completely forgotten about, which is always quite good. Well, you mentioned then that you were involved with the company. How did that happen? I mean, I, I was being proactive. I mean, back in the day when I started working for, for Telecom, I was just almost 21. And um, I had actually tried to get a job there the year before. And um, for whatever reason, they, they didn't give me the job. Um, so um, I actually thought I always wanted to work. I loved the idea of working in and around the games industry because obviously back in the 80s, it was a very exciting, very new thing. And um, I guess my, my first sort of realization that I might be able to do something in it was I, I used to write letters um, as, as you do or as you did rather, it's emails these days, isn't it? Um, to um, a company who I'm sure you've heard of, uh, Addictive Games, Yeah. was Kevin Toms. Um, because we had, a, my dad bought us a BBC Micro and I was desperate to play Football Manager. But at the time, this was the very early 80s, it wasn't available for the BBC. So basically, I wouldn't say I pestered him, but I did write a few letters and suggested that it might be a good idea if they did a BBC version. And in the end, out of the blue, the phone rang one day and it was Kevin Toms asking me if I wanted to do some playtesting um, on the BBC version. So I said, oh, yes, please. So he sent me a couple of tapes in the post and I just kind of did, did some playtesting. This is when I was at college. So I was like studying A-levels or something. Um, so that was kind of my first taste of it. Um, but I honestly thought that maybe the magazines was the route I was going to be able to get into that sort of arena. Mm -hmm. So I had um, I had some interviews at uh, uh, I nearly called it Complete Vegetable Garden. It was computer and video games. <laughs> um, and um, again, I didn't get the job there either. There's a bit of a theme going on here. Uh, but um, I did get to do some reviews for the magazine as compensation for not getting the job. But I also had a regular um, column, if you want to call it that on um, CFAX, 
on teletext yeah. on the on the TV, and I did software reviews and I had an adventure helpline that I did for about a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, on BBC, I always used to joke that I was on TV every day for two years solid in the 80s, but um, it was only on teletext. I'm not sure whether that counts or not. I'm sure it um, does. <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, so I was, I was being proactive, I think is the phrase you'd use. Um, so writing stuff, trying to get jobs in the industry and so on and so forth. Um, and when I was doing the stuff for the BBC, I used to send them like floppy disks in the post. And it was even then it seemed a little bit of a strange way of doing stuff. And they said, oh, there's this wonderful thing called Prestel. And if you if you sign up for Prestel, they'll give you a, a 1200 board modem for free and then you can send us the pages that you're creating via this wonderful thing called electronic mail i thought oh that sounds good so i signed up for prestel and i don't know if any of you have ever got into prestel or micronet or, or, or saw it back in the day yeah i remember but, seeing um, it. i never used it myself but it always seemed like uh, a really cool system yeah yeah i mean so, i say it's the precursor to the internet really yeah. isn't it but there was a whole load of um sort of sections that were dedicated to different hobbies and interests and stuff and there was an adventure one on there so i made contact with a number of people talked about adventures because that was my thing text adventures was my, my my sort of passion, I guess, back then. And um, one of the people I got in contact with, by some sheer fluke, ended up getting a job at Telecom. This was the year after I'd applied and failed to get the job. And I just jokingly said, oh, if you ever hear of any jobs going, let me know. And then again, phone call out of the blue saying, oh, there's a vacancy if you want to, you know, try try and get in. So I uh, made contact, got interviewed and, and got in that way, really. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a dream come true, really, because I, I loved, I mean, the reason I went there was for Rainbird Software, because mm. they said they did the text adventures, and they did the strategy games and, you know, the big blue boxes, if you remember, and they had all the sort of high quality extra bump in it, like the manuals and the extra um, bits and pieces. So I really wanted to work for Rainbird. So yeah, I, I got the job there and, and, and started as a games tester, which uh, was a bit strange to begin with, because it's a bit odd when you're sitting there playing a game and getting paid to do it. Um, it, it was a bit of an odd and a bit of a surreal first week from what I can remember of it, because, you know, I would have done this for free, you know, <laughs> so every kid's uh, dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was hard to explain. I almost felt a little bit guilty explaining to, to, to people what I did for a living back then, because, you know, I mean, OK, it wasn't just playing games. There was a lot more to it than that. And to be perfectly honest, after you'd played a game for the 300th time, you did get a bit sick of it. Um, and in fact, to the point where normally once a game was released and published, you were you were given a free box copy of it. And nine times out of 10, I gave that away to somebody else because by then I didn't want to see it ever again. <laughs> so um, it, it, it sounds fun. But when you do it over and over and over again, it does become a bit of a pain in the end. But no, no, it's great. I mean, I, I loved it. So that's how I got in. Well, I mean, let's talk about the company itself. Because I mean, as a okay. kid, when I used to see, uh, you know, Firebird software games in mm. shops, I mean, the company always interested me. And you saw the British Telecom logo on the back. And you know, that, that idea of like British Telecom, BT, having a games company. I mean, how did Telecomsoft start? And what was kind of the story? Um, well, it does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? When you think about it. I mean, in hindsight, you think, why on earth would British Telecom get involved in game software. It seems a bit of a strange thing, um, but I think it was just. Uh, I think it was just the the time that the company was set up was when British Telecom was just being privatised. So it's like severing the last few ties with the post office. Because obviously the telephone system was part of the post office originally, and so I think there may well have been a culture of them sort of being encouraged to possibly diversify a little bit and see what other avenues British Telecom could possibly have an interest in. And um, I mean, the angle was that 
And this is where BT were way ahead of their time, and unfortunately, they were a little bit too far ahead of their time. Um, all the the contracts that the programmers had to sign when they signed up to do stuff for, for, for Firebird and so on um, included the bit where it said that there would be electronic distribution. Yeah, so they would be selling stuff down the phone line. Yeah. So BT were thinking that in like two or three years' time, everybody wouldn't be buying their games off a shelf. They'd be use, buying a modem using BT's network and therefore, you know, dial up and all the wonderful money that that would bring to BT. And then they could sell the content as well as offer the, the technology um, that allowed them to do that. They could actually have a slice of the content pie as well, if you like. So they're about 30 oh. years ahead of the time, really. Well, exactly. Yeah, it was it was a shame, really, because I mean, I think maybe, maybe ten years later there were there were some signs of that starting to happen, but certainly not in the um, the early to mid eighties. That that was never really going to happen. But that was, I think, was how they were persuaded by uh, the guy that set it up, a guy called Edwin Williams. Um, I think that's how they were persuaded to to give it a go, if you like. And um, I do know that a number of other companies were. Not exactly happy that a big company like BT was getting involved in something that was at that point still a, I mean, definitely a growing industry, but it was still run by, it was still smaller companies who had started up from nothing. And I think they saw BT as a, as a major threat um, from day one and thought it was a little bit unfair that a company with, with the huge resources of British Telecom behind it could kind of come in and, and, and start, you know, taking some of their customers away, that kind of thing. So I think there was a little bit of hostility possibly from some of the other publishers um, towards BT's involvement in general. And of course, ultimately, uh, it kind of proved to be right because BT, after a couple of years, started to think, why are we doing this? Um, And there were rumours going around uh, before I joined the company. I know there were rumours that BT were on the the verge of closing them down or selling them off or something. And that kind of was almost every year those stories would kind of float up again. Um, so yeah, it does. It does sound strange. And even when we had contact with other um, parts of, of of the main business, if you like, they did say, "Oh, you're the games company," and kind of looked at us with a funny kind of you know look in their eye, uh, as as if to say, "Why is BC doing this?" So yeah, it, it, it's it's a strange thing. But I mean, it was good. That, I mean, it's not that they had unlimited funds because they still had a, a budget they had to stick to. Um, but I guess the company had the advantage that you know they they could maybe spend a little bit more time before they got it right than other companies could. Other companies, if they didn't manage to sell stuff and sell it well from day one, then maybe it wouldn't stand on its own two legs and it would collapse sort of a year later, which of course was the fate of a number of software companies back in the day. Um, Whereas BT kind of kept the company going a little bit longer. And in fact, I think I'm right in saying that it actually took the company possibly two or three years before it was sort of sufficient self-sufficient in terms of it was making enough money that it could stand on its own two legs rather than relying on BT to keep funding it until it made a profit. Where did the name Firebird come from then? Ah, right. Um, That's an interesting one because originally they were going to call it Firefly. Hmm. And in fact, I think the the initial adverts, because uh, at the beginning they were inviting people to send their games in. And obviously that was the start of the the budget range, the Firebird um, 199 um, uh, budget range. And they originally advertised it as Firefly Software. You can see the advert on my website and there was in the magazines at the time. Um, But nobody had bothered to check to see whether there was actually anybody else called Firefly Software already. 
And of course, it turned out that there was. So the the the, the people who were working there at the, at the time, and there was only a very small group of people, uh, and one guy called James Levy who'd come in, and um, he basically they had to sit down and think of an alternative name literally that afternoon before you know with all the lawyers and everything. So we've got to come up with a new name. And he came up with Firebird, and the only reason he came up with Firebird was because he'd been listening to the um, Firebird suite by Stravinsky, I think it is, some classical music, on his radio on his drive into work that morning. Wow. And that's what <laughs> popped into his head. So, so it's basically named after a bit of, uh, I, think it's, I think it's maybe from an opera. So there you go. Stravinsky classical music is the real reason why it was called Firebird Software. It's a good job he wasn't listening to Tony Blackburn or something on the way. In, <laughs> yeah, or, or, yeah, or some heavy metal or something. Who knows what we would have ended up being called. I'm going to do software or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. you know, when they were going around, like, obviously trying to get these, these games released, I mean, did the association with British Telecom and, uh, you know, the post office help them establish trust in the market, do you think, with the retailers? Um, yeah, I mean... James Levy um, has said to me in the past that I think the sort of the fact it's British Telecom did give it some sort of gravitas, if you like, and there was some trust that they weren't going to get, uh, you know, they weren't going to get shafted for one of another phrase um, by by this company. Um, so in some respects, yes. I mean, as I said I think some people didn't like the fact that it was that it was BT, that it was a big corporation, but most people, I think at least felt a little bit more confident that it, was, it wasn't a fly-by-night company, let's put it that way. Well, I mean, you did mention before about the budget range. I mean, there was, um, there was silver and gold ranges initially, wasn't there? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, was, was yeah. gold kind of like the, the premium games? And Why did they split it into two? Um, well, I mean, obviously, I think what, what they found was that when they started getting games in, some of them were obviously a lot higher quality uh, than others. And so, um, I mean, I think they had had some advice from um, the marketing department of BT initially that they could have different price points. So there was always, I think, the intention of having a slightly more premium label um, as well. And so although it was called Firebird, it then became um, Firebird Gold was the one that started to have the slightly more expensive, the slightly um, higher quality titles on it. Um, and of course, one of the earliest ones that actually came out on the Firebird Gold label was um, Elite, yeah. um, which uh, we can talk about um, a little bit later. But basically, yeah, I mean, it, it, you had the 199, you also had, there was Firebird Super Silver, and um, those were the slightly better than the, the standard budget ranges. And it's, it sort of got quite fragmented fairly early on. And it took them a couple of years for those sort of labels to settle down. Um, so yeah, you said the Firebird Silver, then you had Firebird Super Silver that came in these weird sort of plastic clam shell cases. And I don't know if you ever had any, but certainly those plastic clam shell cases don't particularly survive very well now. They <laughs> they break very easily, and finding one that's intact is quite 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 uh, difficult if you try to hunt them down today. Um, but they had things like Thunderbirds and. Um, chimera and or there's a number of other games that i can't remember off the top of my head that were slightly more expensive um and then yeah i said fiber gold had gyron and elite and and a number of other ones so i think they always intended on having these different levels but at the start they had their sort of range of about um 15 to 20 budget games that kind of got the the company started and then after a few months that's when they started to introduce these slightly more premium 
labels um, afterwards. Well, the silver range was kind of reduced to 199 after the launch. Was this to go up against like budget brands like Mastertronic? Um, I think that's probably very likely um, because, yeah, I mean, the, the, the price range um, did come down. I mean, Mastertronic pretty much set the 199 price point, which really was Mastertronic's thing. Um, they came up with that first from from recollection, and so after a while, they wanted to rebrand anyway. They wanted to change the the look, the cassette labels, because the first kind of 50 releases were in these sort of very white labels with a with a single screenshot on the cover, and that was part of their marketing thing at the beginning. To be honest, was you know, uh, what you see is what you get, because an awful lot of companies were putting a like a, an illustration on the on the cover, no screenshots on the in there at all, and you wouldn't know what the game even looked like until you got it home and loaded it up. Because um, even the magazines, when they first started being published, couldn't do screenshots. So a lot of magazine reviews didn't even show you what the game looked like. Um, that was part of the original marketing drive. But after a while, they wanted to change that. And they actually ended up going to artwork on the cover um, and slightly rebranded it. And at that point, yeah, the price dropped down to the 199 that pretty much stayed for the duration then. Well, I, mean, I remember playing Booty, one of Firebird's yes. games on my Commodore 16 when I was a kid, and I was a big fan of that game. And oh, right. I mean, there are other titles like The Wild Bunch that came out and Bird Strike as well. I mean, uh-huh. th- these kind of early titles, were they like a, a success straight away for the label then? Yeah, they were. I mean, I, don't, I think I, from my conversations with um, uh, James Levy, um, yeah, they were very happy with the sales. And the, the irony there is that um, they did a compilation uh, which was a compilation of the worst games they were sent, which was called Don't Buy This, Yeah, which goes against every bit of marketing advice, commercial advice going, you would never call something Don't Buy This. Um, but they did because they, they, they wanted people to see how bad some of these games were. Uh, and that actually ended up being their bestseller. Reverse the psychology, year. yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> absolutely. And it worked a treat. They sold more copies of Don't Buy This than I think any other game initially um, in that run. And and the other thing is that I believe, and I'm sure he'll probably come and have a go at me if I get this wrong, I'm fairly sure that Tony Rainbird, um, who joined the company soon after it launched, um, wrote one of the games that came on that cassette. I don't think I remember which one, or at least I'm, I think I'm being diplomatic by saying I don't remember which game it was. But, um, but yeah, so even he managed to contribute to uh, to uh, this 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 compilation. But, um, but yeah, so all good fun. Well, their most famous title was, of course, The Mighty Elite. Um, how did they kind of secure the publishing rights for this? And uh, how much did they bid? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, Elite... It was interesting. It was the, I think it's the first time, it may have been the only time, because I don't remember hearing anybody else doing this, where a company basically, um, they did a sealed bid auction. So they offered the rights to publish conversions of Elite, but it was a sealed bid auction. And um, basically, I'm fairly sure Firebird or BT ended up offering about £100,000 for the rights to publish which actually doesn't sound that much today but bearing in mind this is 34 35 years ago that was a fair amount of money and certainly i think from what i've been told the nearest other bid was less than half of that so um i they they saw it as a way of going to the next level fairly quickly they they wanted they wanted to sort of pick up the, the pace quite quickly so they didn't want to just be known as the budget label they wanted to to go that extra mile 
and go to the next level in terms of quality. And that was the way they could do it. So they they basically yeah, bid 100 grand, I think, um, for the rights and obviously uh, got the rights to to do that. Although it wasn't apparently it wasn't as quite as smooth sailing as as uh, the magazines in the day reported. There were lots of other sort of individual negotiations in regards to be able to use manuals and other artwork and stuff from Aconsoft, who of course were the original publishers for the original version. Um, so it, there was a lot of ongoing stuff over the months after they won the auction, but it, essentially they won the auction and bid a lot more than anybody else. Well, how did they go about converting it from the BBC Micro to the other platforms? Um, well, I think that the, the initial um, version that got converted was the Commodore 64, and they got the original authors, David Braben and Ian Bell, to to write that, although they didn't have as much expertise with the Commodore, and they ended up getting a little bit of help um, from a programmer who, hopefully a number of people who know retro games will, will know the name of a guy called Jez San, who was Argonaut Software and went on to much uh, very impressive stuff later on. Um, but they had a, a system, that a programming system that they were setting up that basically allowed them to port a lot of the code across, and they helped them get the, the game sort of up and running quite quickly on the Commodore 64. In fact, the point where I think maybe three or four months after the auction was won, they actually had the Commodore 64 version ready, which was quite quick. Um, so they got them to do that. The Z80 versions, the Spectrum and the Amstrad, um, were done by a, a group of guys who called themselves Taurus, and they had written Gyron for the Spectrum. I mean, it, it was a maze game, but it was technically very, very clever. And it, it, um, uh, it wasn't such a great game, but technically it was very, very good. Um, and that impressed the guys at Firebird. And so they offered them the job of converting Elite to the Spectrum and to the Amstrad CPC. Well, I remember um, Jazz Sun. He was a great programmer. He kind of went on to do the uh, Super FX chip later on, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I he did Star Glider um, for uh, Rainbird and Star Glider too. I used to have to pop down to. They were based in uh, at Mill Hill Broadway, so the outskirts of London. So I used to pop on the on the train on my way home, and I would go and spend a few hours um, at their offices in Mill Hill. And in fact, I think. One of the planets in Star Glider 2 is a mixture, I can't remember what it's called now, it's not Milliways because that's the Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, but it's something like this. It's a mixture of Mill Hill and Mill Hill Broadway, which was the nearest tube station to where they were based in this house. And uh, one of the planets was named after where they were based at the time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Star Glider 2 especially, I thought, was a really good, very impressive game. Um, and um, yeah, there's there's a, there's a few stories uh, about that game as well, uh, about the development of that one, which um, uh, caused a few last minute hiccups before it got released. Well, I mean, at, at Firebird at the time of release, I mean, there was a tragedy involving um, James Schooler, who never got to see the game released, did he? Yeah, that was very very sad um, because I think he'd only been recently recruited. And he was kind of in charge, um, put in charge of, of Firebird, and, and Elite was was his baby, if you like. It was his project. It was, and he was there to said to pull the, the company up to the next level, as, uh, you know, sort of early on. And um, and yeah, he. I mean, I, I I never met the guy because I said I, I joined three or four years later. Um, but um, yeah, he was very young, and um, I think he had a, a heart attack 
and and died um and it wasn't that long after he had joined so that was yeah that was that was quite a tragic start really so uh, yeah not 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 good for him or his family obviously yeah he was only 27 as well i think i read on your website yes yeah. that's right yes yeah 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 very young I mean, talking about the, the software as well, I mean, they, they use the infamous LensLock anti-piracy device as well. Uh, I mean, for people who might not know yeah. about that, what was LensLock and why, why was it so bad? Well, okay, for, for, for anyone that doesn't know what LensLock is, it's a, it's a bit of plastic that's know, a couple of inches long and has uh, three sections, but they're, they're hinged. So you basically can stand this thing on its two legs and it's thin plastic. And uh, when you hold these two things back in the middle section, is a like a plastic lens that you can look through and um it's a little bit like a a lenticular lens so it has sort of layers within layers um and basically it was an anti-piracy method and um let's put it this way it it wasn't particularly popular because it didn't work that well in practice because you had to hold this thing up to your screen and it what you do is you'd load the game so you spent like five to ten minutes however long it is loading your game from cassette and on screen is this scrambled mess of blocks. And you hold this lens thing up, you fold the legs back so it's a little bit of a distance away from your television screen. And through the lens, you're supposed to be able to see a couple of characters. And you type those characters in on your keyboard and that then lets you into your game. Uh, the problem was that different size tellies um, didn't particularly like it. Um, I think the wrong version, because there were different versions of the lens, went out in some of the boxes as well. Um, sometimes people even couldn't read the, the letters properly anyway. It was put on Elite. It was put on uh, a couple of other programs as well. One or two other publishers used it. And it turned out to be ridiculously easy to bypass if you knew what you were doing. Uh, if you had one of these, uh, like a multi-face or one of these things that allows you to poke around in the memory on the computer, you could basically search for the, the there's a calibration thing where it says OK, and then you go into this scrambled mess. And basically you could search for OK, and then you'd find out the address where the characters were stored. And it was very easy then to work out what the letters were without having to have the lens lock at all. Um, so sounded like a good idea. It was a way of trying to stop people copying the games. It was hated by the people who had legitimately paid their good hard-earned cash to buy the game and then half the time couldn't get into the game. And I don't think many people lamented it when it got ditched. That's the thing I always found as well, that a lot of those anti-piracy measures, they would make the honest people who got out and bought the game jump through so many hoops and the pirates would have been playing the game for like a quarter of an hour by then. Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, to be honest, looking up a word from a manual was another way of doing the same thing was not all the code sheets with the brightly colored numbers and all that kind yeah. of stuff and we used to have to sit down at, at firebird or at, more at rainbird because we had the novellas you know the stories that you could put in the box as well that set the scene for the game mm. and so quite often the, the 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 protection was looking up a word from the manual and quite often just just because otherwise it's a very tedious job you would take all the words out of the manual that you needed and let's say you needed i know 30 words so you had a selection of things that people would have to type in. But you would take out words that when strung in a line would make an interesting story on its own or a funny story or sometimes a slightly rude story, depending on what the manual was or what the game was. Uh, but it was it was to make the job a bit more interesting because otherwise it was a bit dull. Um, so, yeah, there were lots of different copy protections. The on-disc obviously was done as well. And that could cause problems um, with um, some machines um, uh, because... Over time, like let's say 
especially on these 16-bit machines like the ST and the Amiga, the copy protection got quite clever and quite complex and we'd have extended tracks and you know you'd be doing all sorts of things that the disk drive and the, and the floppy disk weren't necessarily designed for originally and the problems uh, not necessarily when i was at fiber but certainly at other companies later was that they would change the spec of the internal drives in the machines um, or the machine would get upgraded like the 48k spectrum went up to the 128 and sometimes programmers would be using little hidden bits of address that they weren't supposed to be using to squeeze that little bit extra out of the machine. And then it would stop working because they've changed the ROM somewhere. And if you'd done everything sort of the legal way, if you like coding wise, then it would all work fine. But if you hadn't, then half your games wouldn't work on the latest iteration of the Spectrum or the ST or the Amiga or whatever. And um, sometimes they change the internal spec on the disk drives on the ST and the Amiga without telling anyone, thinking it wouldn't make any difference. And it stopped the on-disk protection from working. So it thought it was a copy and wouldn't run. So sort of protection in general had lots and lots of problems. Lenslock was just one early attempt to try and... Uh, stop people being able to easily copy it ultimately you couldn't stop people from doing that it was just if you could stop enough people then that would that would be better than not trying at all well gyron was a big kind of gold title for them and uh it went all out with the marketing you could even win a porsche oh gosh yeah yeah i think that was the only time they did that and yeah i mean in the end i think it was won by i think it was either spain or portugal it was done across a number of different countries in europe and um, the eventual winner wasn't old enough to drive. <laughs> so uh, thankfully, they had had the foresight to see that and said, well, you can either win a Porsche or the equivalent money. And so I think he went for the money in the end. So, uh, yeah, I don't think they ever did anything quite that large again. Well, they also um, tried to move into the US market as well, didn't they? What happened there? Um, I mean, they, they did set up a US office. They took a number of titles over with them um i believe elite was one of the first if not the first british title to actually be number one in the american software charts um whatever that was called i can't remember what, what it was now they also took on a number of titles uh to sort of republish that were released by um other companies in the states so almost like a budget label in itself but selling us stuff and i mean i think it i think it did quite well but ultimately it was a little the, the stuff that we were publishing was a little bit too british in terms of the content and in terms of the the marketing and so in the last year they changed tactics they they um closed down the operation that had been set up they kind of farmed it out to um, some people who actually sat within the offices of Activision, from what I can remember, in the States, Mediagenic, I think they were by then. And um, they kind of tried tried a second time with more American um, packaging, if you like, and only some titles, not every title that we did. Um, and that, that was working up until a point where the Rainbird label basically had to be knocked on the head in the States because there was a company out there who are still going today who sell or at the time i think they sold water sprinklers and they were called rainbird and they successfully argued in a court in somewhere in this in the states that um they could quite legitimately branch out into software at some point therefore this company can't be called rainbird and so that got knocked on the head it became a little bit irrelevant anyway because within a year of that happening bt had sold the company anyway so that ceased to be a problem but um but yeah so it, it was a success in the states for a few years then um it kind of petered out in the end 
Well, how did uh, Firebird transition to the 16-bit era? Well, I think like a number of companies, they, um, they, they did it in two ways. They tried to do a couple of conversions of existing stuff first. Um, so you had on the budget range, you had things like Eyeball and Warhawk that were done for the ST, and they were done at like a tenner. So that was technically budget a budget price point for 16-bit. Um, but at the same time as that, obviously Rainbird was by then the sort of the premium side of the business. And that was the one where they wanted to try and get into the 16-bit market as early as possible. So you had titles like um, Starglider, and later on you had things like Carrier Command, like Text Adventures, you had Magnetic Scrolls and things. So they were definitely on Rainbird were pushing 16-bit from quite early on. They, they saw that as, as, as the, the future. That was the direction that everybody was heading in. Firebird was still a mixture of more 8-bit, but going to 16-bit at a slightly slower pace, if you like. And I think the transition was quite easy because we had quite a few contacts already because the sheer number of budget titles, for example, we had a number of programmers who had worked with the company already and who wanted to go to that next step as well. And obviously by then there was a reputation. And so it was relatively straightforward to attract people to do 16-bit stuff like like real-time games, for example, who'd done a lot of good stuff, 8-bit with 3D, um, you know, took that transitional step to go up to 16-bit and did carry command. So yeah, we, we were, I think we were an attractive proposition for a lot of people who wanted to go to 16-bit to and, and, you know, progress to that next level. One title I remember was you know, David Braben's 3D Blaster Virus. I mean, mm. that was technically stunning, that game, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the game, technically a conversion of an existing title, sort of, because he, he did a, a version of the game, which was the Lander demo that I think was done in whatever the, 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 the basic language was for the Archimedes. Yeah. Then that was progressed to be a full commercial product called Zarch. And then... Um, when it came to doing ST and Amiga, uh, Telecom basically um, bought the rights to do that game, but it couldn't be called Zarch. And bearing in mind what the game was about, Virus seemed like a fairly obvious title. Um, I think it's the same number of letters as Zarch as well. Z-A-R-C-H-S. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that's just a coincidence. But basically, yeah, I mean, Virus was... It was a game, it's a little bit, it's a bit of a Marmite game, I think, for some people, though, because of the control method, because um, really adept players could play it with the mouse. Um, and it was very fine movements and very fine little adjustments. Um, and for some people, you'd flip the rocket upside down, you flip, flip the ship upside down, and it would rocket into the ground in two seconds and blow up. Every time so, I played it, that was my experience. But yeah. <laughs> I, I loved I loved that two seconds though. It was still fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looked great, but you die very quickly. So yeah, some people couldn't quite get the mouse control. Uh, I mean, the impressive bit was that we ended up getting a Spectrum version of that, and that was just sent in by someone because by then, I mean, I said when the company started, people were sending in software and saying, you know, please can you publish it? And obviously, we published a fair amount of it, and some of it we didn't. As the years went by, that kind of tailed off, but we still had people sending stuff in the post and there was still someone whose job it was to go through submissions and see if there was anything any good in them. Um, certainly by the time I got there, we didn't get that many submissions because the sort of the market and the, and the computer games industry had matured a bit. Uh, so there were obviously companies and programmers who are full time, you know, because, I mean, you have to, go to remember that the games industry wasn't even, what, 10 years old. It yeah. was eight, seven, eight years old when I joined. 
Um, but it had already changed massively from those early days. Um, but somebody literally sent in the post a demo that they'd written on the spectrum of the virus landscape. And we went, oh, didn't realize the spectrum could do that. <laughs> so uh, it, he got um, signed up by the same agent that David Braben and Jess and a number of other people um, signed up with it back in the day, a guy called Stephen Dunn. And um, he did Virus on the Spectrum, and then he did Starglider 2 on the Spectrum, and I think he went on to a number of other things after that as well. Um, so was, I was quite impressed that we got Spectrum version. But when I worked for Firebird, they knew that I was I was still championing the 8-bit machines. By then, I I think I'd bought an, I had an Atari ST first, and I got an Amiga later. But I was still quite a big fan of the 8-bit machines. So any games that had 8-bit versions i would be the one that would get to test them because everybody else was eager to get onto the 16-bit machines and do those so i tended to get a lot of the 8-bit stuff near the end before the spectrum and commodore and the amstrad stuff started to die out a little bit so i was kind of championing the 8-bit machines for as long as i could well uh, they were still on a high why did bt kind of decide to sell the company i mean at the time i have to admit because i i was a fairly new sort of member of staff um, so I didn't know what the sort of the nor- normality was within the company. But in hindsight, it was fairly obvious that there was stuff going on in the background between the management that I wasn't really aware of. Um, and obviously, in subsequent years, I've spoken to my former bosses and found out lots of stuff I've put on, on my website. But basically, the first couple of years, the company wasn't really making a profit. The moment the company started to make a profit, that's when BT started to think, well, this isn't part of our mainstream business anyway. You know, it's got nothing to do with the rest of the of BT. Um, the thing that might have had some inroads in terms of selling over the phone lines hasn't happened. Um, they'd moved the company around in terms of where it reported to. I think they shifted into two or three different places over that sort of five-year period. So they never really knew where it fitted anyway. They basically, once the company was able to stand on its own two feet, was making enough money, was an attractive proposition, i.e. it was sellable, um, that was the point that BT said, okay, I think we need to now sell it and, you know, get rid of the company because it's not doing what our core business is. So uh, that was in sort of summer, autumn of 1988 that they were asked to... uh, try and um, sell the company what became of the firebird brand then well in the end it got sold to the uk branch of microprose who was obviously an american company did some fantastic flight simulators and um, some other products as well they had set up a uk operation 18 months two years prior to this and were starting to do conversion work on some of the us titles and also starting to source some of their own things and um, a number of staff from Firebird had left Firebird and had joined Microprose before we were ultimately sold. So there was, uh, if it to us, once we knew we were being sold, it became fairly obvious that Microprose were likely to be one one of the front runners to buy us because it had a number of ex-managers working for them already um so uh in hindsight again it was a little bit of a strange decision because they had actually only just launched two new labels of their own which was micro status and micro style which were effectively trying to or from my perspective at least it seemed that they were trying to be a little bit like firebird and rainbird and 
not silver because they didn't do budget, but they were trying to diversify and and have separate publishing labels that did different things in the same sort of model as as, as Telecom Soft had. So it seemed a bit weird that they would then buy an extra two labels and add to that when they'd only just launched their own. They stopped using the Fiber brand then after a while, did they? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, what they did was uh, the moment they, bu- they brought up, people who were working for, for Telecom were given the choice of signing on the dotted line and going with the new owners or going back into BT. And three quarters of the staff went back to BT and then from there soon after went off and out to other games developers like Probe and, and all sorts of places. Some of us, me included, thought, well, we'll give the new owners a go. And so we kind of signed on the dotted line. And basically, we had a number of games in development at the time that were uh, likely to be good sellers. We, we were fairly confident we had some good titles coming up. And I think that's what made the company attractive to to buyers anyway um so we had stuff like uh we had mr heli p47 we had rick dangerous um we had stunt car racer uh we had rainbow islands which is something i can talk about in a moment um but basically we had a number of games that that were in development that were almost finished so they literally or some of them were finished in fact and basically, Micropros wanted to sell those, get them out the door and shipped and out as quickly as possible, basically to recoup the money they'd paid BT for buying the company. So everything that was being worked on was pretty much published within about six months of them buying us. And then once that was done, that was the point that I left. But basically, they only ever published one more game on the Firebird label uh, that had been solely developed by Micropros after they took the company over. There was a game on the ST, I think, and on the Amiga called Fire and Brimstone, which was a little bit like Ghosts and Goblins or Ghouls and Ghosts, that kind of thing. Um, and that was the only game that they actually developed themselves using the Firebird label, and then that was gone and they never used it again. Uh, Rainbird kept going for a bit longer. Uh, and again, they published all the stuff that we had in development. Um, they moved a few titles around. So Stunt Car Racer was originally a Firebird game, but it ended up going out on micro status, I think, in the end. And um, But they also used the Rainbird label for some games that hadn't originally been signed by BT, which was stuff like um, Midwinter and Midwinter 2, which was the Mike Singleton 3D extravaganzas, if you remember those two yeah. titles. And... Um, they had effectively poached Maelstrom Games and Mike Singleton from BT because he had done a lot of stuff for Telecom the year or so before. But once the managers had left and gone to Microprose before the, the takeover, they then got them to sign up for Microprose instead. And then their titles ended up being on the Rainbird label anyway, just by Microprose, not rather than by BT. So it was about, I think, Rainbird lasted a, a good year or 18 months after Firebird disappeared. And the ironic thing is that about a year after that, Microprose ended up in trouble and ended up getting sold on to um, somebody else anyway. Well, you mentioned Rainbow Islands there. I mean, what, what a classic game that was. I mean, did, did mm. that, was that have a big impact on you when you saw that game? Did you? Did you enjoy oh, it? we loved it. I yeah. mean, we had the coin-op in the office, not for very long, unfortunately, because I think it got shipped off to Graph Gold quite quickly. I say I, I was much more of a text adventure strategy type of guy. But I loved Rainbow Islands. We all did. Um, Graphgold did an absolutely cracking conversion job on all the platforms, not just the ST and Amiga, which, to to my mind, were almost arcade perfect. But the Spectrum, Amstrad, 
uh, were equally as playable and equally as good. But it's, it's just a it was just a wonderful game, lovely design, one of those games that you just want to keep playing. You know, you want to you, you, if you, you make progress, you want to go to that next level. And I mean, all of us could get to like the sixth island without without dying, and that was without cheating. And the game was like 99% finished um, as a BT Firebird game. Then we got sold. The, because it's a coin-op conversion, because it's owned by Taito in Japan, those rights aren't assignable over to the new owners. So basically, Microprose had to negotiate with Taito, and that negotiation didn't go very well. And so Taito basically took all the work that had been done by Graphgold and paid for by BT and said, right, who's going to pay us money and you can have this? And basically, Ocean stepped in, snapped up the rights, got the whole game pretty much finished and just published it and took all the glory and um, i'm hoping i don't sound too bitter but it was a little bit <laughs> annoying that that happened but uh, but no rainbow islands was a was a great game and uh, still is today well why do you think bt soft and kind of firebird has been fondly remembered by many fans um i think we had a we had quite a diverse range of games and across all of them from the budget ones to the mid-price ones to the the sort of the premium ones i think there was something for everyone I mean, there's, as I say, there's, there's, there's quite a few budget games that we did. Things like, you've mentioned, we mentioned Booty earlier, Thrust. There were some adventure things like Seabase Delta. You had Warhawk, which was a quite smart little shoot-em-up. Um, you had Galaxy Birds, which was a sensible software game, which a lot of people forget about when they talk about sensible software. Um, so there was, a, there was a nice mix. I mean, they re-released an awful lot of other companies' games as well on those budget labels. But there's always, I think there was there was at least two or three games that most people would remember with with fondness on the budget label. And then the full price one said, obviously, Elite. I mean, the absolute classic Firebird game for me is uh, Jeff Crammon's The Sentinel, which um, was at a different level even back then. And again, it's, it's a kind of a Marmite game, but it for me that's one of the best game designs ever and it's a game that yeah, some people couldn't get the hang of and found it too slow but for other people it's a it's a terrific challenge and still is today and lots of people have tried to do new versions of it down the years uh there was a there was a kind of a, a reimagination of it on the playstation years ago the sentinel returns which wasn't particularly great but there's been a lot of sort of homebrew versions on windows and other platforms that have been fairly close and have you know almost got not quite replacing it in my affections but there's been a few that have actually made it a really nice game where you can pick up and play for five minutes and put down again but yeah and then to say the rainbird stuff carry command star glider the magnetic scrolls games the level nine text adventures that they republished i think there was something for everyone and in general i mean yes there were some ropey budget games in there as well um but i think in general, there were some very good titles in there. I mean, it was incredible. They published something like 900-odd games in total. Not different games, but across all the platforms. It's like nearly 300 individual titles, if you like. And, um, yeah, I think I think there were some really good games and some, some gems in there that have stood the test of time. Well, if people are listening maybe from outside the UK and they're not familiar with um, some of the titles, I mean, your, your website, Bird Sanctuary, you cover a load of the titles on there that people should check out and some mm. really interesting history. And, I mean, looking through your history as well, Richard, I mean, you've done so much over the years. I mean, looking at games you've worked on, I mean, stuff like Microcosm, Beneath the Steel Sky, uh, Sensible yeah. Soccer, uh, Warhammer. I mean, you've had a yeah. very interesting I history. Mean, yeah, I mean, from from Firebird, um, I went to Mirasoft, 
And um, that was a very interesting couple of years and ended in a very interesting way. But maybe that's a different story for a different day. Um, and yeah, there was a load of things in there. My my main regret with Mirasoft was that we were we went under, if you like, uh, just as we were about to, I think, become massive. Mm. We had a lot of titles that went on to other publishers, uh, things like Lure of the Temptress and Sensible Soccer and Cannon Fodder and a whole load of things um, that, yeah, would have been, would have done us a lot, a lot of good, but that went to, uh, most of those went to Virgin, in fact. But yeah, I mean, I ended up working freelance for a number of years for a number of companies. So Virgin, Mindscape, Psygnosis. Um, and so I got to get involved with either i did i said i was a project manager i did testing i uh, did a lot of manuals and documentation as well so a lot of the a lot of the books that nobody bothers reading in the boxes were written by me um so uh, and yeah i mean at mirasoft we got involved in a number of um of the bitmap brothers games when they were part of the um the imageworks label so spent an awful lot of time play testing speedball 2 furiously at the bitmaps hq um in the last few weeks before that game got launched um so yeah i had quite a lot of lot of games only when i listed them out of for the website did i realize quite how many i had had some involvement with i mean i said um, at the start my involvement can be quite small sometimes but uh i'm i'm still quite I, mean, I, I hate I, I hope it doesn't come across that i'm sort of bragging about anything but i was really proud to have been able to have some involvement in the games industry in that sort of decade in the 80s when everything was being set up and changing so quickly and it went from being very small to very large and there's a load of games in there that i worked on at the time that i wouldn't realize at the time would still be sort of held in people's affections for for so long afterwards even if it's a very small thing um, usually you remember the programmers um, and the graphic artists and musicians and rightly so because they're the guys that create it but there's quite a few of us that worked from the publisher's side who you know we we have fond memories and we're quite quite proud of our involvement in it well you wrote for retro gamer as well for a couple of years i mean have you got any plans to revisit writing or maybe do a book about your experience ah well yeah i mean i i wrote articles for retro gamer for eight or nine years um i haven't done one in a while but that's because i've been busy uh i mean my job now weirdly is now having spent 20 odd years away from games uh my job now is actually right back in with retro games literally because i i now work for the company that brought the commodore 64 back yeah so so the, the 64 mini is uh, the thing i've i've been working on for the last year or so and so i I, I get to look at Commodore stuff again, which is really surreal. Thirty <laughs> years later, and in, indeed, one of the um, one of the games that was one of the first games I ever tested when I worked for Telecom thirty years ago, is included on the 64 Mini as part of the standard setup. So I, I ended up getting to play test the same game 30 years later which was quite surreal well i was in america recently and we were all drooling over the american version of the uh, c64 mini all right yeah uh -huh. yeah and we're hearing rumors about the full size version as well so. well yes I, I i unfortunately i'm not allowed to comment on it yet <laughs> but yes that, that 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 is in the works that is what uh, we're working on right now so uh, it's uh, it's great. I mean, I, lo I love retro games. I, I have I have two kids now and they're playing modern games. But every so often I'll get them to have a go on the 64 mini or on the spectrum because I've got all the machines still here. And um, they actually do quite like some of the old games. So I'm, I'm trying to tear them away from Fortnite or, or Minecraft and I'm getting them to um, 
to have a go and play and they did actually play booty and actually quite enjoyed it to be honest when they had a go last year so i'm hoping i'll i'll, I'll persuade them slowly to uh, have a look at some of the stuff that daddy worked on years ago well, Richard, we could honestly do like another two episodes with you, the amount, the amount of things you've worked on. But um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, everyone needs to check out the website, Bird Sanctuary. I'll put a link in this week's show notes. And, uh, oh, that's brilliant. Uh, no, thank you for asking me. It's been, I, I don't need an excuse to talk about the old days, to be honest, but this has been great.